Australia. Quake Cooper for the win. It's on its way. It's on its way. It's gone. Quake Cooper is the man. Hello and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. We're diehard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby. We're real family friendly and positive. So get involved. Get involved. I'm your host, Ando. With me is Mitch. How's it going? And you can find us on all major social media platforms. Mostly get involved with Twitter. So please jump on and yeah, have a nice chat with us. We just want to shout out and say a big thank you to our listeners and to particularly the absolute legends that have been supporting us through coffee.com, ko-fi.com slash pick and drive rugby. Over the last couple of weeks, we've had some absolute legends send some money our way, which really helps in terms of improving the quality of our pods giving us the opportunity to go to different matches and to make sure that our podcasts are available everywhere you listen to them. So big thank you. And if you like what we do, please consider throwing some cash that way. But Mitch, we have some super brew stuff to talk about because there's been a couple of big swings on the tipping ladder. There has. So a bit of an upset round uh, in terms of super brew tippings this week. Um, Scopey Brumbies fan has taken out the round two of the rugby champs tipping comp on Two and a half points, followed closely by Evie, also on two and a half points, and then Sis uh, or Sis PT two, uh, who's on one and a half points. So uh, there's really only one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people who got any points this round. So very difficult <laughs> with most people going for the Wallabies who didn't get the win, and then most people going for South Africa who also didn't get the win. So very hard round to tip. Well done to those who did get some points. Absolutely brilliant. Well, tonight, Mitch, we have something pretty, pretty special on. Um, I'm a giddy little schoolgirl in this moment. So okay. can you please explain what is going to be happening tonight and why I'm all hot and flustered? Well, if you have been listening to the pod for the last few years, you probably do know that Ando has a list of players of, I think we're calling them the Ando's list of attraction. And up the <laughs> top there, we do have Ryan Lonigan. Unfortunately, he wasn't available tonight, but we do have, I think, Probably a better person to bring in currently, considering he is a, a current Wallabies squad member. But Ned Hannigan is joining us tonight to have a bit of a chat around the Wallabies, the Waratahs, all things happening in the world of Ned Hannigan. So very much looking forward to having him join us shortly. It's not even my birthday, mate, and yet you've organised this. Um, what What are you going to ask of me soon? What What favour are you going to ask of me? Um, I haven't got that down yet, but there is a World <laughs> Cup coming up next year. So some flights one way to France could uh, could sweeten the deal. <laughs> Mate, I could have just got in touch. Uh, what's that platform where people make you videos? Um, 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 Swish, Swish or Swift or... Yeah, yeah. Could have got Ned to send me a video if that's how much it was going to body cost me. But either way, I'm incredibly <laughs> excited. And uh, yeah, we've also going to talk through the South African New Zealand game because there's some... Uh, pretty big moments that came out of that match as well as a pretty juicy uh, press conference that Mark Robinson, New Zealand rugby CEO, just held uh, only an hour or two ago. Juicy. And then That's we the word were, you want to use? Yeah, it is. Um, there were things flowing. Blood will be flowing pretty soon. Um, and we're also going to make sure that we get through your talking points from the locker room, although most of them will come up during the interview with Ned. So why don't we jump on into things, my friend? Let's go. Looking forward to this Let's one. Let's go.
I have a question for us all. Question is, who am I? I'm a 25 cap Wallaby. I had my debut in June 2016 versus Fiji. I've played 54 games for the New South Wales Waratahs and eight games for Karita Watergush in Japan. Born and raised in Coonamble in Central West New South Wales, but most importantly, he's in a top three of Ando's list of attractive rugby players. It is Ned Hannigan. Ned, how are you? <laughs> Pretty good. Thanks, fellas. Thanks, Ando. I love that. I'll, I'll make sure my missus <laughs> listens to the podcast. <laughs> Mate, do you want to know who else is on the list? Well, I'll tell you anyway. David Pocock and Ryan Wanigan. So you're in pretty esteemed company, mate. Yeah, yeah all right. <laughs> I'll take that. Where do I sit? One, two, or three? Um, Danny, oh, God, that's, <laughs> that's genuinely hard. Tonight he sits in one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Mitch, you had some questions for Ned to uh, start things off for the evening. Yeah, so first of all, thanks for your time this evening, Ned. And um, we really appreciate you making the time to chat with us. So we've got a few quick fire questions just to get to know you a little bit better and for the fans to get to know the person that is Ned Hannigan behind the rugby player. So first of all, what's an average day in the life of Ned Hannigan look like? Uh, at the moment, it's, um, yeah, we're up uh, sort of 637. Um, I usually have a bit of cereal, a bit of toast for brekkie, roll in, do a bit of rehab, uh, run the dogs of an afternoon. Um, yeah, try to, uh, do a bit of, I've got, there's not much of a backyard here, but there's a bit of lawn. So I'm just trying to get the lawn looking, looking schmick. Um, now nah, look pretty laid back during the day. Fellas, not, um, not full tilt and, a, you know, massive goal, but just get what I need to get done. And, um, yeah. I just love how much that could actually marry up with like any middle-aged dad, like <laughs> walking the dog, getting the lawn nice and green, mate, you're rocking, rocking things there. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, uh, yeah, no, I, I keep myself busy, but um, yeah, just tick boxes. Now, you did pick up a little bit of an injury in Wallabies camp a few weeks ago. How is the knee coming along and when are you expected to be back? Yeah, a knee sweet, did a little meniscus. Um, first operation I've had actually through footy, so I've uh, been pretty lucky. Six to eight weeks, we're four weeks in now, things are going pretty well, so... Um, yeah, get back into a bit of running and starting to do a bit of wrestling and stuff like that. So, um, no, nah, we should be should be back on track for about that sort of six six week mark, hopefully. And are you in talks with the Wallabies camp to sort of be available for the end of the rugby champs, or maybe uh, spring tour later in the year? Yeah, I don't know. I've, sometimes I think <laughs> the Rens loses my number. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I. Uh, uh, look, they're um, obviously pretty busy with the injuries at the moment in the squad, and there's a fair bit going on. So, uh, look, no, I've spoken to the medical staff a little bit, and they're just keeping me on track or keeping me on track with things. But um, it's a little bit just depends how the swelling sort of goes with these meniscal injuries. Like it's it's lateral meniscus, so the swelling tends to sometimes be quite delayed. And uh, but at the moment, everything's tracking all right. Brilliant. Well, we wish you all the best with that, and we'd love to see you back on the park as soon as possible. You have spent the last little bit of time overseas in Japan. Uh, what was the best experience you found playing rugby overseas? Oh, I think I think the yeah, I could talk at length about this, but it's um, I was at a club where uh, all of the the Japanese players were company workers, and 
they just play footy solely because they just love the sport so much. And I think sometimes um, being a professional and always um, you, you kind of, you know, you've got the media um, every day going in, travelling, you know, people spend time away from family. Kind of, you kind of can lose the love through the intensity of, of the professional arena. And I think going over there, um, yeah, just really helped me sort of take a step back from, um, I suppose, some of those pressures and, and just look at the guys that just play the game, which is why I started playing. I think that's why, you know, so many people love the game and are still in it um, in some capacity because they just love it for what it is. And, yeah, so I think that that side of it, was pretty special. Um, a good example of like is is the team I was at. We had some pretty big losses because um, there was such a big sort of disparity between a professional team that you know always train in comparison to the blokes that are coming out of sales or engineers or whatever. <laughs> then train. So you know, I remember one day we got seventy put on us, and it was pretty grim in the sheds. But um, because they've just got that love of the game, they kind of said, look, you know, we're not okay with getting beaten like that and we've got to get better. But they still sort of appreciated one another's efforts and had, you know, cheers to one another. And um, sometimes that's a little bit hard, you know, playing here in Australia because you've got, well, you put so much pressure on yourself to perform and there's coaches and other players and fans and things like that. So sometimes it feels like, a bad performance makes you a bad person. But I think over there, they kind of separated the two. Mm. And, yeah, that love of the game and the game is not who you are. It's just something that you play. So, yeah, that, that part was, was something I definitely took out of it. How's your Japanese coming along? <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Um, come on, come on. What can you share with us? Uh, can you order something in Japanese? Uh, <laughs> The numbers in Japanese, so um, so if I want like one of something um, uh, or two, or yeah, it's like uh, for, for Tatsu is two or Mitsu is three, so you can walk in and be like, uh, I'm trying to think of um, what's a buddy Japanese fruit or something, Omi or Ume, Ume. So for Tatsu, Ume, I guess you must be two plums, please. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I could have said anything there. I would have got away with it. Yeah, you could have. I mean, because then, then what happens? I'm quite right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, part of what happens is they then come back and go, oh, okay, then this will be that much. And you're like, what? And you just hand them a really big note and hope that that covers um, <laughs> the amount of the pr product. <laughs> right. A lot of um, menus are in front of you and there's a lot. I know what, you know, Cod Air talk, Cod Air is like this and this. So it's just a lot of points. Uh, yeah, Mizu is water. So I, I had that, yeah. Now, ordering food is something I sort of, I worked out pretty quick that it needed to, to be learned. Otherwise, I'd go hungry and um, <laughs> it wasn't, it's not an option. So, yeah. And when you did come back to Australia, you've been away from the Waratah setup for a year or so. What were the changes that you saw in, um, I guess, the setup of the Waratahs? New coach, a few new faces. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously new faces, some fair contingency of the group, the players, um, they were, well, and the coaches, Wits and Gilly have been there. Uh, I've worked with DC and Paulie, so 
those faces were familiar, but there were a few new faces getting around. Um, I think the biggest difference was just the growth in the group. And I think if you look at the results, uh, you know, the previous year, obviously, you know, the worst in history and, and things like that, but the group sort of stayed stayed together. And I think that that was quite um, helpful and powerful for them leading into the 2022 season because you've got a group that's done hardship and hasn't turned on one another and pointed fingers and there wasn't this divisive culture amongst the group. It was all, um, you know, accountability and, and performing for your mate. And I think that kind of shone through um, for the remainder of, you know, the season in 2022. So that's probably the biggest, biggest, not so much change because that's always sort of in the woodworks, I guess, but having a bit of a hardship and then um, having a better season or one that, you know, was a hell of a lot better than, than what the 2021 season was. And I think that that same amount of growth can happen leading into the 2023 season. So, yeah, just a really close-knit group, which I think was pretty special. Well, both Ando and myself are very loyal Waratahs fans. So we're, first of all, excited to have you back uh, in the sky blue, but very much looking forward to what 2023 um, dishes up for the Waratahs. Uh, one last question before we dive back into rugby chat and one that's maybe not so much rugby centric, but is there a, a hidden talent that Ned Hannigan has that maybe the average rugby pundit doesn't know about? <laughs> Kangaroo impressions. I've heard a couple of those. Yeah, that was no good. <laughs> I up so hard there. Scotty sort of said, oh, I'm going to come over. And then when he came over, the people that were sort of sitting with they just all dispersed. And I just went, oh, I've just missed the memo there. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. And so that, I don't know. <laughs> doing that. Anyway, we were actually, we were staying in um, Twin Waters up there and there was a few kangaroos getting around in the park. And um, sometimes when you were sort of in their vicinity, they'd make a few rugged noises and, Anyway, so I <laughs> had a crack. Anyway, I'm just going to stop talking about that. Um, <laughs> uh, hidden talents. Uh, I don't have really many. What you see is what you get a bit. I can scull two liters of milk pretty quick. Um, so the milk challenge is, is something that's um, I'm not going to say easy, but doable. <laughs> Do you keep it down afterwards? Yeah. No, yeah, stay. good man. Yep. Um. I won't won't go into detail, but after about sort of one or two hours, it's yeah, it's not real good. <laughs> That's a lot of milk. <laughs> Excellent. Well, now that we've got that milk challenge uh, as a future opportunity for the Wallaby social media unit, why don't we move into the actual matches itself <laughs> over the weekend? Everything. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. How good. Okay, so um, Argentina versus Australia, round two of the rugby championship, coming off a 26-41 win the previous week. We went down to a record loss against Argentina, 48-17, to a 31-point shellacking there. So obviously there's a lot to kind of dive into, but before we kind of talk about the nuts and bolts of the match itself, um, as a Wallabies fan, one of the things that I'm hoping for the most is uh, consistency within performance. And there are a whole bunch of factors in terms of injuries and player availabilities that obviously have impacted that. But for you, Ned, as a player, what factors are really significant that impact consistency in team performance week in, week out? Yeah, I think we've sort of mentioned the injury side of things. And, and look, Renz is really good at not using that as an excuse. Like there's a lot of crop 
to choose from here in Australia. Everyone's playing pretty good footy. Um, but, yeah, I, I think for, for a team to go well, um, the first and foremost, like, well, for me, in, you know, how I sort of look at it and try to keep consistent performances is the stuff you have to do as an individual during the week, um, the controllables that you need to do. So if something sort of untoward happens later in the week, it sort of shouldn't be as disruptive if you've, if you've ticked off things that you need to do. So, you know, for example, a nine would be box kicking and he needs to get a fair few of these type of kicks in and there might be a different type of kick um, that they, you know, seize an opportunity. Like I know Tay, um, uh, Tate McDermott, he did a little 50-22 um, that was, you know, pretty clutch at the time. It sort of got a little bit of momentum with the Wallabies when they, you know, needed it. And I don't know whether he saw that opportunity, you know, from the previous week and sees that the wingers coming across. So he would have been practicing that during the week. For me, a bit of breakdown stuff, you know, specific. So I think just keeping consistent things during the week that you've got to tick off kind of helps towards a consistent performance. Um, but there's, yeah, look, when you're on tour in particular as well, there's so many different variables that can sort of happen. You're moving to parts you don't really know and you're in and out of hotels and things. but Look, that's touring and that's what yep. the wallet um, obviously prepared. But no, I'd say to have consistent performances, the stuff you're doing during the week needs to keep pretty consistent. Mitch, I'm going to read out a injured uh, 15 of the Wallabies setup. And we're going to just, I'm going to ask you how much this really did actually impact, even though Dave Rooney doesn't want to talk about it. So Angus Bell, Dave Parecki, Alan Alatoa, Isaac Rodder, Caden Neville, Ed Hannigan, Michael Hooper, Lucky Swinton. Nobody at nine at this point, no injured nines, touch wood. Uh, Quade Cooper, Andrew Kellaway, Sami Karevi, Hunter Pasami, Izzy Parisi, Tom Banks. And like there are more we haven't even mentioned it. Like Fala obviously got pulled just before the weekend as well. Mm. Um, so I know that Dave Rennie and as Ned have mentioned, when they're trying not to use that as an excuse, but realistically, what's the impact of this type of uh, availability or non-availability on the Wallabies and their team performance? Yeah, I think it's a little bit naive to sort of sit here and say that it doesn't have an impact. And I know Dave is talking about not using it as an excuse and trying to, as Ned said before, trust the players that are selected and and that there is enough players and enough talent there to get the job done and they should be able to step up and perform as well. But realistically, when you go through that list, six or seven of those players would potentially be starting for the Wallabies. Quade Cooper, um, Alan Alatoa, those guys would be starting this week. And I think losing them and losing them late has a massive impact on cohesion for one thing, but also just on the overall squad and the, the way that the, the team's prepped leading into the game. Yep, big point. Um, and look, Ned, any quick points on that one before we move on? Oh, look, I, I, I think cohesion's definitely, definitely one. Um, you know... I can I, I go back to the uh, the first test against England. You've you've had a a really good sort of three weeks, you know, two solid weeks, and then there's a week before the test where Quade's been at ten and been training, and then he pulls out, you know, with a calf strain. Like those things, I think at the time um, they're uncontrollable. The messages on the field. And the messages, you know, with all these injuries, um, it's always got to be, you know, you can't use it as an excuse because the next bloke's got to 
be prepared to step up and perform to the best of his ability. And I think if you ever like have the mentality that it is an excuse, then you kind of lean towards, you know, oh, something's not working. So it's because that guy's not usually there or, you know, he's a little bit underdone or you can't have that at international footy. So I think, mm-hmm. yeah, look, the, the mindset is that um, this is just an unlucky situation that you've got to ride. And there's, you know, there's times in test matches where things might get unlucky, a referee's call or a, a pass doesn't go to hand that usually would, or there's heaps of things like that. And you just got to ride with it and you can't really let it affect you. But yeah, look, when you read that, I've, I actually haven't done that. Like you've just named a 15 and like you said, there's just players there. If that was a 15, they'd probably go all right. So yep. um, yeah, like it, it's, it's, it's a different situation, but I think, Look, there's, there's positives out of it too. You get folks that um, exposed to international footy that, um, you know, they get a bit of a taste for it and might get a bit hungry to get back there and that puts pressure on the guys coming back from injury and, you know, healthy sort of rivalry in a position and stuff like that. But yep. you're right, it, it's, um, it, it does have a bit of an impact, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, a good example of that is obviously um, Billy Pollard making, what, the 46-hour flight over to Argentina, but now he's a capped wallaby and has the experience yep. in really testing circumstances. Um, yep. All right, let's move on. Last week, Argentina kicked the ball 15 times. They obviously had a game plan where they were going to try and play with a lot of width and a lot of pace and stretch the Wallabies' defence. This week, they kicked nearly double the amount, 29 times, and four of their tries directly resulted from kick receipts. Uh, Ned, within a, I mean, I won't ask you to comment on being a back three player and um, taking those high balls, obviously. Uh, but within your role as one of the loose forwards, there's obviously a real importance is placed upon kind of uh, being in the right place and probably shielding the catching player and making sure he can get take that ball un, uncontested where possible. Um, how much is that an element of what you guys practice throughout the week? And how hard is it to actually be doing on the fly with the randomness of what happens on the field, yeah, it's 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 a big part of it, um, and I think um, you know coaches and players that are in those roles a fair bit of the time would be pretty disappointed. But um, you got to give credit where it's due. And Argentina started with that tactic, and it was working. They stuck to it, and their nines and tens were putting like on a twenty cent piece, so they were just bombing them on dimes. And it's very hard when the kick is just on the money like that. Uh, to not, you know, give a penalty away for impeding, but also stop a player like, you know, Buffelli, who's, you know, fit, well, I think he's quite 50 caps, but he's, you know, he's been playing for Argentina for a long time. He he knows how to sort of evade that and still put pressure on a catch. Um, but they they also chased really well, Argentina. Like, the, yeah. like the first try in sort of the opening couple of minutes, Geordie catches that. He gives it to Tom Wright. Um, there's a bit of a fumble there. If the Ardies don't have sort of two or three coming through onto that ball and hungry to get to it, Tom Wright drops that, regathers, and it's just a ruck. But because they had the urgency, so it goes back to that, you know, you sort of create your own, own luck. Um, you know, the urgency to chase those kicks was they would just had bodies around it a lot of the time. Um, you know, people will see the ball get dropped and then just falls in an Argentinian hand. But they've got the the 30 metres prior where their outside backs are just, you know, head to the turf and just running um, to get somewhere near the pill in case something happens. 
that that part of the game from Argentina, they they absolutely executed. And I guess in a wider sense, not not just on the uh, kick receipts or taking those contestable catches, but just in a wider sense, how hard is it to adjust to things or the game plan that's not quite working on the fly during the game? Um, do the play? Do you as players often come together and talk about where you need to improve, or do you sort of wait till halftime and and get the input from the coaches and then try and make those changes then? No, I think you've you know you've got to adjust um, on the on on the go. And Argentina were obviously had a you know a tactic to to go to the air, and they would they were executing it really well and. Test footy, if you've got the best players from another country executing it extremely well, it's 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 just a hard thing to, you know, combat, I suppose. And um, you know, the Argies weren't they weren't clean catches. They weren't just, you know, some of them, they were, you know, obviously were, but there was drop balls and a few little mistakes here and there from Aussies. And again, the Argies, the outside backs were, you know, hustling through. I think uh, there was a back rower that you know, picked it up the six and um, ran a fair way to get the trial on as well. So they're just, they're just hungry to get around the ball. But tactically, if things, you know, are just blatantly not working and you feel like, I don't know, there's cameras been watching you during the week and they just know your line out calls or know that you're going to do this or something, you, yeah, you have conversations and say, look, we think this might, might work. Um, should we try it yet or we should we stick to the plan a little bit? Um, so yeah, you, you're having conversations around that. The leaders are having conversations all the time on the field around that. One of the things that really stood out was how um, kind of the first 15 minutes of the game was a bit of a template or a blueprint for how the rest of the game went. So you had the first, the try in the first minute to run him off um, with what you mentioned before, the Jordan Pattaya. Uh, pass and then fumbled to Tom Wright. Um, you then have the kind of not push over try, but the close range try from Gallo um, or Gallo, Gallo. Uh, and that was a bit of a two on one from Tupo and James O'Connor and Tupo fell off that and Gallo was able to power over. But then kind of in a ninth and 11th minute, we got penalty after penalty and walked up the field. And then with basically our first entry into the 22 off the back of a barnstorming run from Bobby Valentini off the back of the line out slippers and able to get a pick and drive over for what must be like, maybe his second ever test try. I think that's yeah. right. <laughs> um, so he was, everyone was cheering around that, but it just showed. Uruguay, Uruguay <laughs> World Cup was his first yep. one. Yeah. Yep. Um, so just, just, that element or that start of the game showed how the errors that the Wallabies made throughout the full 80 minutes, Argentina, Argentina just pounced upon them. But when we had our chances within an opposition 22, generally we actually did quite well within that zone. So it was really frustrating both to see that level of um, inaccuracy, particularly under the high ball, when we know or when we could see quite clearly that actually in the right areas, our attack was quite good. Um, and there was a lot more opportunity for that. Mitch, is that kind of how you read the game as a, as a whole? Yeah, I mean, there was those forced errors, like we've spoken about, which were frustrating, and, and it's, they started early, um, and it's something that the Wallabies and Dave Rennie has been talking about for the last few tests around starting well and, and not letting the opposition get out to too much of a lead, and five or six minutes in, we're 14 points down. So it, the Wallabies didn't make it easy for themselves to get back into this game, and in some ways, I think it. when we look at the selection and the players that were there and the level of experience, some players in certain positions seemed to panic a little bit and made some decisions that maybe if they had the time over, they probably would have held the ball and not pushed the passes as much. 
Um, but yeah, on your point, Ando, as you said, when once we got our hands on the ball and we got in the opposition 22, we looked deadly with it. We just weren't able to string those phases together too consistently and too, um, too many times and, and allowed possession back to Argentina through either a drop ball or a turnover at the breakdown. Dave Rennie said in kind of the post-match press conference that um, I've got a few quotes here. The, the Wallabies were dominated in the collision area. They needed to be more patient. They weren't clinical enough. We had our chances and to cap things off, a Dave Rennieism, we've got to be better. Ned, is that how you kind of see things that the Wallabies were, whilst obviously um, putting their best effort in playing with as much heart as they could, there was just something off and they didn't have those moments of accuracy that they would be expecting of themselves? Oh, look, I think, um, you know, each individual player and the guys in the squad, they're their own harshest creek and they're demanding more. But you got to give it to the Argies. Like, they they fronted up. They absolutely, um, they played variation off the edges. They were punishing through the middle of the field with their bigger bodies. Um, their scrum, they just must have worked, you know, a bit tactically on their scrum. I don't pretend to be a hooker or a front row or anything <laughs> like that. Um, I think their their scrum set piece, you know, between the two games, it was, um, you know, there's definite changes there. Uh, the mauling, I, I just think they they they've got they've got a plan tactically that they just all executed. And um, when a team's on like they were, it's 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 yeah, it's hard to stop. Um, but yeah, the, the Wallabies are going to be disappointed. Like they would have gone out there to to you know front up you know, in the, in the collision zone and their uh, sort of escort retreat men um, would look at that and, and know that next time they sort of have this come at them, they need to be a hell of a lot better. Um, yeah, but I think you can't take anything away from, from the Argies. They, they played exceptionally well and, and really didn't. I think the second half of the first game, they, you know, probably pushed the passes and, um, had a few mistakes, which let the Wallabies get back in. As you said, like the Wallabies, when they come into that 22 area, pretty good at executing. And we did that. Um, but I think the, the entire 80-minute sort of performance from the Argies this week, they, they just stayed on task and they just executed it. On that point, I mean, because there's a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of negatives that we can justifiably take out of the game, but we're a positive rugby podcast. We like to talk players up and really highlight the good things where where possible. So, uh, Mitch, can you give us a couple of players, both from kind of the Wallabies and or Argentina, that you think really stood out for good reasons within this match? And then, Ned, I'll throw it to you afterwards. Yeah, I'll start as a, as a Wallabies fan. Um, Bobby Valentini, I thought, had a really cracking game and had some real big, big carries with ball in hand. and. Towards the end of that English series, he sort of went a bit quiet and probably didn't have the impact that we've come to expect from him. So it's good to see last week and then this week as well, he's starting to put some big minutes together and, and getting some big dominant carries with the ball, which was great. Awesome. Ned? Yeah, I think, I think that's probably the best game I've of, of, um, watched or you know played with or been around when Bobby's been involved. He... Uh, work off the ball was immense, um, which is why he was, you know, getting the ball in his hand and also ending up in collisions a fair bit of the time. His his work off the deck was exceptional. Um, yeah, but I think that that first um, sort of collision 
Um, well, first up contact, I think he just owned that space. Uh, this game was just exceptional. Uh, he's, he's even, there was a bit of a collapsed mall and he's on the side of the uh, defensive mall and realised it's coming out the back and he's gone over and, and got a bit of a pill for, I think there was something maybe entry from the side or something from somewhere else, but he's sort of disrupting the breakdown as well. So I thought he had a great game. I thought, uh, I thought Lullakai was pretty good. I thought yeah. he, um, you know, did his job through the middle. Um, he had some big bodies coming around the corner a fair bit of the time. I thought he fronted there and any support play. Uh, there was one where I think he's offloaded to Lenny. Iketau's gone through and then you just see Lullakai shift his line and hit the burners and ends up getting a second touch. So that stuff, um, it's hard to do at any level, let alone in national footy. So I thought La had a, had a blinder as well. I just want to point out some stats that support some of our positive comments here. Bobby Valentini had 12 runs for 69 metres, one clean break, five offloads, uh, five defenders beaten with one offload versus his direct counterpart, Pablo Matera, who's kind of touted as one of the best number eights going around, who had nine runs for 15 metres. So, yeah, Bobby Valentini had a barnstorming match. Uh, the player for me that I really want to highlight is Bertrano, um, Argentinian scrum half. I thought he was excellent. His control of the game was top notch and the kicking game that he and Carreras the fly half had was was exceptional Carreras was a massive step up from his performance last week in the level of control he had around the park so I thought they were both excellent I think throwing back to the Argentinians as well Thomas Gallo number one two tries for the RGs and I mean that second one questionable whether it's legal if you get tackled short and then dive over the top but regardless he hang on would not question which is blatantly not a try but (laughs) I didn't want to say that because the referees awarded it and we don't, we don't ref bash, but. Pronouncing, pronouncing the names, I'm a bit worried that I might get it wrong and offend them, but um, yeah, no, 100%. The nine, nine, ten, and the one. And I think the outside backs is a bit of a group. They, they would have sat down during the week and been like, look, we're, we're going to the air. We need to be good here. And, and they were. Yeah. Um, yeah. They executed that part well. I'm just trying yeah. to find, I'm pretty sure it was Gallo that got two tries against us in 2021. Yeah. Um, which match was it? In, yeah, okay. So, yeah, he, he got two two tries against us in the 63rd and 72nd minute um, in our 32-0 win, 32-17 victory. Um, I remember that, yeah, because he got a double. So, he's just, we got to get him off the field, man. He keeps scoring doubles against <laughs> yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> Um, so look, Dave Rennie, I, I mentioned a quote from him before where he was talking about how the Wallabies, um, pretty blatantly apart from Bobby Valentini, lost the contact or the collision area. Um, and it's a quote from him after the game. Ned, for you as a player, like how do you actually win the collision area? How much of it is a mental approach? Uh, how much of it is of it is kind of technical elements in terms of your carry height, pre-contact, post-contact footwork, or do you just basically have someone yell at you and smack you in the face a few times before you run out onto the field? Like, how does it work? Uh, I think during, during the week, you get the, the technical side of things right. Uh, you can spend time on, on making sure that, um, the, you know, the tools that you're going to use during the game. Um, yeah, sort of honed in during the week. And I, but I, on game day, you know, you don't go out there and try to think, all right, I need my hands up and shoulder punch and leg drive. Like you just you can think of that in the breaks, I suppose, but when someone's coming around the corner that's just trying to run over you, like they're not thinking of 
you know, I need to make sure I do footwork like this. Like they're just doing it and hoping that it's sort of a bit of muscle memory from the things that the repetition you've done during the week. So yeah, look, I sometimes um, good leaders will will tap into the the emotional side of things, you know, as opposed to the analytical, I suppose. And if if someone needs a bit of a rev up, sometimes it works. But I think more often than not, uh, on game day, the the collision zone is is a mental um, thing for the individual. You you sign on and um, you're either up for it or or you're not, or or you might be up for it but just not good enough. The other blokes are bigger, stronger, and playing better at the time. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so you're not a Scotty CEO who kind of like barks like a dog to hype himself up in the sheds? Big dog CEO? <laughs> yeah, he doesn't do that, Scotty. No, I, uh, yeah, look, I, I think self-talk too on the field, you, you might get, um, you know, in a situation that you feel like you could have dominated and you, you didn't um, as much as what you thought you can or things like that. So self-talk's a big one as well. You need to make sure that you're, um, giving yourself feedback the whole time and, and making sure the blokes around you are, are sort of working in system and with you. And, um, yeah, I, I, I have no real problem with having a conversation with someone around, you know, there might be a bit of a lull in the game and you just go, right, I like this phase. We need to get active. Like we need to, we need to belt something. Um, and having those conversations and little sort of, I suppose cues to just sign on, um, and 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 it looks different. I think the collision the collision zone um, for some people, you know, can just look like a, you know, like a Bobby Valentini's a, a barnstorming runner, um, but blokes, you know, can pester at breakdowns and lineouts, and there's different different sort of ways that different players do it. You know, some players. Um, you know, obviously, like a Fraser McWright will just go so physically at the breakdown and, and not always get the ball, but if he's pestering it and giving those long six, seven, eight-second rucks, that's his that's his way of dominating the collision area. So it looks different for different players, but I think each player knows where they can sort of add in that game and um, being mentally sort of, you know, in tune with what the hell's going on and, and just tapping into it. And that sort of mental and physical edge that you're talking about, what are some of the strangest techniques you might have seen in the change room that players use to get themselves ready for kickoff? James O'Connor's deep breathing technique. Um, I love that one. That's a bit of breathing. Um, uh, I've, seen, <clears throat> I've seen someone rub deep heat uh, on their eyebrows and face. Uh, that was a bit of a rev up. Um, yeah, look, I, a, a fair bit of what goes on now is not uh, not that weird, though. They, it's sort of, you know, you, you've done it during the week, you know you can go out there, you just hit the attitude sort of button and, and gear up for it. <clears throat> well, mate, talking about that uh, odd level of intensity that deep heat to your eyebrows would definitely bring. <laughs> uh, prior to your injury, you were in Wallaby's camp. Um, there have been a whole bunch of injuries that have come out. Some of the player... Um, absences have obviously been for personal reasons as well. How has the intensity been in camp from a training perspective? Have you seen a big difference under Dave Rennie comparative to the other coaches like Michael Checker that you worked with previously? I think the intensity in in any international squad is um, it's what the players make it and 
Uh, the group, you know, might change a little bit along the way, but yeah, look, you you can you can get facilitated certain sessions where you feel like the session needs to to be really intense, but it doesn't go that way because the players aren't quite as intense. But I think, um, you know, I was only in camp for sort of three weeks with that um, before the injury. So, but the intensity in training, yeah, I can't, I couldn't question it. You, you know, you, um, no one in there is is sort of taking um, their opportunity lightly or getting complacent with it. So uh, it's a little bit, it's a, it's a hard thing to describe intensity because there are certain times in training where you need to to know to listen and learn and and be able to might the intensity not be as high and then you've got to be able to flick the switch. So, but I yeah that that side of um, the Wallabies training is not in question at all. Yep. <coughs> Understood, mate. Let's move to the upcoming match against South Africa in Adelaide on the twenty seventh of August. So it's two week break until the next game. Uh, apart from being a bit of catching practice amongst the back three and maybe some of the blockers blocking. What do you think needs to actually change as they come up against South Africa? Oh, I think, you know, Renz has sort of said it um, straight after the game. I think you'll have um, people individually being pretty critical of themselves and making sure that things that they probably pride themselves of in, in certain positions, they didn't execute, so they'll be working on that. But I think over across the board, um, there'll be a pretty big emphasis on making sure that their, you know, two-man dominance and tackle and, and their ability to slow the ball down and, and stop momentum um, will be pretty big because Saffers aren't getting any smaller. The Argentinians are, are big rigs coming around the corner, but the Saffers are, yeah, uh, the boys are juiced up. <laughs> big rigs everywhere. <laughs> you did mention you were in Wallabies camp for about three weeks and during that time it was sort of in the lead up to um, that English series. It wasn't necessarily in the competition like we currently find ourselves now. Was there any chat around an overall um, game plan or um, selection policy of who Dave Rennie had, has in mind of who might needs to get minutes before sort of the end of the year to sort of look at what the best 23 is for 2020? three in the World Cup next year, or is he kind of selecting what the best players are at the moment? Oh, I think, you know, I don't know. You have to ask Renz that. He's <laughs> communicator. Dave, he sort of um, communicates individually with you and, and tactically makes everyone aware of, you know, where they're supposed to be and their job. Um, but no, there's no question that he, he'll pick the best 23 that are available at any point in time. There wouldn't be any sort of I need to, you know, bleed this bloke, you know, because he needs exposure and like that. Like he's he's focused on winning as as we all are, and uh, the blokes that are available and playing the best at that point in time, they're the ones that'll that'll pull it on. Well, the good news is, as we go into that South Africa game, we are above them in the ladder, as a matter of fact. Uh, both Argentina and Australia are on five points, both teams having got a bonus point in their respective round one and two matches. And South Africa and New Zealand have taken points off each other whilst also not receiving bonus points. So they're both sitting on four. So we can at least say that we're above South Africa and New Zealand within a rugby <laughs> championship ladder as it currently sits. But what we might do is shift to a little bit of a... um couple of personal questions for you because 
Obviously, within Australian rugby, the big news of the last fortnight was the um, decision that Michael Hooper made to take a step back from the game for a little while for mental health reasons. And there's been near unanimous support for that. And I think anybody who hasn't been supportive is an idiot and or a troll. So it's been really great to see that support going out there. Um, Matt, I wanted to ask you this question because when you burst onto the international scene in 2017, there are a fair few people in the kind of punditry and just rugby fans that, well, why don't we just say they had plenty of opinions? Um, they had plenty of opinions. <laughs> so how do you both as a player and obviously more importantly as a person, how do you deal with those public pressures and the criticisms that are directed your way within professional rugby? Uh, yeah, look, it was a pretty steep learning curve. I... Um, yeah, it's sort of play the super season and you kind of are exposed to a fair bit of good feedback and the media is sort of on your side and the, um, you know, the social media and stuff. And then, you know, everyone's kind of supportive that you get to pull on the jersey and then you have a few bad time or, you know, you don't play as well as what you have been known to play. And then it all sort of spirals downhill. And I think um, I got I got a bit of a shock. Uh, initially, I was sort of probably reading the good, and then you keep reading the bad, and then when it ends up all been bad, and then there's some good, and it's kind of you're kind of riding the the ebbs and flows um, of how you're playing. But it's I kind of I, I think Japan, you know, really highlighted to me that although you have a bad game, you're not a bad person. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can, <clears throat> sometimes it's hard. Like, I think it, it's still hard for me to you know, today to try to separate the two. If you have a bad game and you come home in the, you know, if you're out to dinner after a game or you're having drinks or you come home and see your partner or you've got to try not to, you know, make their time bad because they've got nothing to do with the game. It's seen to kind of separate the two. And I think, um, you know, getting away and looking at something else was, was pretty important for me. But the other thing is, um, having a close circle of people that you trust their opinions, uh, you know, they're going to be a hundred percent honest to you. They understand um, the realm of what you're in some, to some extent. Um, so having that close circle of trust, I think was, was pretty good for me and pretty important for, for younger players, especially coming through that can be scrutinized by, you know, trolls and things like that. It's um, yeah, but it, it, it is just so important to, you know, make it known that like Instagram messages or um, stories about players and, and things like that, or, you know, messages to players, it's, you just got to be so careful because it can, it does have an effect. Like we're, you know, we're playing the game to our best of our ability and anyone who pulls on any jersey is, is going to just pour their energy into us. Um, but I think, if you're just constantly on the receiving end of of hate mail and um, sort of media scrutiny, it, it it can have an effect. I think a player, you know, more recently, cross codes the NRL that's really stood up for it is is Latrell, and he's obviously copied from a uh, more often than not from a racial point of view. And I just think it it has an effect on on blokes and women, and you just got to be so careful that um, that that sort of behaviour it it can be an undoing of a, of a young athlete or, you know, a player of the, a veteran as well. Like it just has an effect and I just reckon it's not needed. Um, 
yeah, so I think I deal with it um, a fair bit better now than what I used to. I think from a mental point of view, I like I said, have that close circle of people and um, I know I'm my own worst critic and, and I know I'm going out there doing my best, you know, any given time. So it it's, it sort of falls on deaf ears with me, but I know blokes that, and, and women that it doesn't. It doesn't fall on deaf ears and it has an effect and I think that's just, it's appalling behaviour too. Some of the messages mm. are just faulty. You just, mm. you just think, well, uh, yeah, um, I won't go into what you think, but it, <laughs> like you, yeah, you just shake your head at it. But when it, if it's constant and it's a bot and a, it's happening all the time, you can tell someone to don't worry about it. But it, it, you, it, it's just in the back of their mind a fair bit of the time. And are there systems think- in place by like the Waratahs <clears throat> or the Wallabies even to? To help players with that side of things, um, players help players with it. Um, I think you know the something that drives a lot of players, particularly on field, to perform is is the bloke standing beside them and the people that they're representing and their sort of why. So um, having the support of of the group and and you know coaches and things like that. We give sort of reinforcement that what they're doing is is right, but yeah, it's 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 a hard situation to be in, and, and like you said, I've I've been on the receiving end of it a little bit, and you also see blokes like I, if you take hoops for example, like the bloke is is an absolute machine. He he's someone that not any player in Australia that's playing the game doesn't want to play with, stand beside you know, going to the trenches for and and uh, he still gets like just rubbish poured out on social media and in the media. You just think these blokes when or you know, trolls or bots or whatever are doing, you just think, well, I don't know what I don't know what planet they're on. Mm-hmm. Um you look at the bloke's stats and so that sort of points to, you know, they've got no idea what they're talking about, but everyone's entitled to an opinion and I, I can understand that as well. I just think it's it's really important on how that's delivered and, and how much an individual is copying it. And that's a really important point. Um, I often like to say that everyone can have an opinion. It doesn't mean you're not wrong. Um, and also <laughs> alongside that, um, there's there's genuine uh, criticism that can be directed towards performances, but not towards players. And I think that that's a key differential to make. And um, one thing that I think some of the more... Um, uh, some of the podcasts that are going around, I think, within Australian rugby are gen- generally pretty good at trying to build players or the game up and say what's being done well. But also, uh, if if a performance hasn't been particularly what a player would want it to be or the result hasn't been what the team wants it to be, to make meaningful critique and not just crap on a player. Uh, oh, because that just doesn't help. There's no, yeah. And that's... That's you, you know you both watch the game and and um, have an opinion on how the individual performances. I think it's that side of it. But whether or not you need to um, take the liberty to to tell the person, I don't really reckon that's needed. And I also think that um, if you're you know a bit biased uh, on behalf of someone that might be in the position that didn't get picked or not from the same states or, you know, along those type of lines. And it's not, it's not critiquing a performance. It's just, just bombing a bloke. Um, 
yeah, I, I don't really think it's needed. And I, I just think um, we need to be really careful around it because um, it has effects. It has affected, you know, it's affected people. I know people that um, have not pursued careers um, or have retired early and thought I'm fed up with it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, that, that side of it, um, you are entitled to your own opinion, but how you sort of display that and communicate that um, needs to be appropriate. Very well said. Now, we've had a whole bunch of fan questions that have come in. Uh, a lot of them were addressed during our earlier conversation, but there are a couple that we wanted to kind of directly lay towards you. So Keir Donald Dub Anderson asks, what is it that makes Randwick the best club in the world? <laughs> oh, God, the week. <laughs> Look, there's a lot of great clubs in the world. I, I love them. They've been so supportive towards me. I we was coming out of school and um, Randwick were kind of that that club that sort of put an arm around me and, and helped me um, find my feet here in Sydney and I'll be in debt to that club for the rest of my life. And, and the people that uh, I've met along the way through uh, being associated with Randwick and, and, you know, still talk to them today. Um, but, yeah, I look, I... I'm probably a bit biased. I haven't been to other any other club um, from a sort of uh, I don't know, not semi-professional, but sort of that club footy um, feel to it, other than Rewing. So I'd be a bit biased. Oh, mate, you're completely allowed to be biased. It's a joy of being a fan, isn't it? Uh, Hugh Tyndall, do do you prefer lock or six? And then what are the current work-ons that you've been given by coaches, both the Tars and the Wallabies? I often say I'm a lock that wants to be a six, um, which is the case for a fair few blokes, I'd say. Uh, but, no, I think in national footy, I'm a six. Um, I'm not a bloody, you know, 120 kilo, six foot eight monster. Um, we're not all gifted like Rory Arnold. So, <laughs> God, he's tall. He's tall. So, yeah, no, I think I, think I enjoy playing six. Um, or eight, and and that's probably where uh, I see me playing my my best footy. Um, yeah, a bit of stuff to work on. Uh, there's, I don't know, you can work on any part of your game. Um, line out more defensive. I think it'll be a big part of it. Like coming into these, you know, games um, towards the end of the year as well. Big bodies, so making sure you're you're getting in front. Um, so, yeah, plenty to work on, but hopefully I'm back in the mix to, to be able to work on them. Final question for you, mate. Last one. Uh, Canamble, someone wants to travel out there. What's, like, the thing that they need to see in Canamble? <laughs> uh, the, the bustling yeah. metropolis it is. Sitting at all, the biggest grain silage um, storage in New South Wales is parked up there at Canamble. It is massive. Um, Grain Corp have got a fair few acres of stuff. <laughs> uh, so if you're all interested in that, but uh, there's a little coffee shop called Mick and Me uh, just in on the right-hand side as you go past the Shell Servo. Go there just after you duck into the Shell Servo to get a Chico roll. Uh, go down the main street, do a quick Yui and keep a roll. Mate, how good. Well, anybody that's out, because you go Dubbo, you go Gilgandra, Galagan Bone, and then, yeah, Canamble. Mate, it. 
what a place, what a destination. Well, everybody, make sure you head out there on your next Outback uh, trip. Ned, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the pod. Thank you so much for your time and uh, best of luck with the rehab over the coming weeks. Thanks, Vaz. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, it was a good chat. Good on you. Go well. Now, the second game of the round, full round two of the Rugby Championship, was between South Africa and New Zealand. This one was a little bit of an upset in some regards, if you go by the picks on Superbrew this week. New Zealand coming away the victors 35-23. Now, most people were expecting South Africa to get the victory this week and for Ian Foster to be sacked at the end of the game um, and the New Zealand rugby community to just spiral further and further into abyss. But that didn't happen, so we need to talk about what actually did happen Ando, what were your thoughts generally about this game? Well, I think that it was a combination of a vastly improved New Zealand performance, all-black performance, combined with just a little uh, bit of missing clinicality, if that's even a word, but basically just a lack of clinical approach from the Springboks, which I displayed last week. So when you combine those two things together, together it really leads to the result that we had on the weekend. I think the scoreline probably flatters New Zealand a little bit mm-hmm. in terms of they had a try um, right at the end of the match to Scott Barrett to take it out from 23 to 28 to 23 to 35. Um, I think 23 to 28 is probably a fairer reflection of the match itself. And if we look at the um, the game as a whole, do you think it was more of a a different approach or game plan from New Zealand from what we saw last week, or was it more of a tactical decision in terms of the 23 that was named by South Africa that was the determining factor? Look, I think there were a couple of points that um, came into play. I think Malcolm Marks needs to start every single week that he's available. Um, so him not starting, like he came on in the 50 or 53rd minute or something like that and had almost an immediate impact on his capacity to get a few turnovers and to shore up the Springbok scrum. Um, but uh, I mean, a lot of this comes down to New Zealand just making less errors than they did last week. I know it's a really simple thing to say, but think of it like the Wallabies this week. If we catch the high balls and diffuse that attacking opportunity, the game turns out different, right? Yep. So for New Zealand this week, their attack, or sorry, their ability to deal with the high balls from South Africa was vastly improved. Their scrum was more stable and their lineup was more consistent. Give the New Zealand team that and they're going to put points on you. And that's what we saw. We've been speaking a few weeks now that Richie Mawanga needs to start at 10 for the All Blacks. And this is the first time in 2022 that we saw that. Do you think having Richie Mo leading that backline around changed things for the better for New Zealand? Well, he's the form number 10 in New Zealand rugby. So I don't really understand why Bowden was getting picked ahead of him. Uh, I think Rev put a stat out or somebody put a stat out that there had been something like New Zealand wins 90 or 92% of the games where Bowden Barrett comes off the bench. Or maybe it's they haven't lost a game where Bowden Barrett comes off the bench. One of one of those two. Um, but that says less about Bowden. And I think Richie Mwanga is just the form fly half. And whilst Barrett might be able to do the job across both 10 and 15 at an incredibly high level, Moang is just a better 10, in my opinion, and it should have been starting. And I guess if we look at both teams now moving forward, New Zealand has a week off and then they play two tests in New Zealand against Argentina. South Africa travel out to Australia and play two tests against the Wallabies. How do you see the path or the trajectory of these two teams going now? Look, I think the... Um... 
The challenge that the All Blacks have is they still have some significant injuries within the front row that they're struggling to kind of deal with. Um, I mean, whilst it was an imp- improved performance from kind of Ethan DeGroote, Terrell Lomax, Bauer and Fletcher Newell, uh, I'm just also I'm not sure if they're going to be the consistent week-in, week-out performers at a higher level. Um, so that's going to be an area that they should be looking at too. I think with the back line, unless they've got some major kind of centre players returning from injury, they should just keep this pick and stick like they already have. Uh, the, maybe a consideration could be if Sevi Reese is back from injury, maybe swapping him out for Caleb Clark, who whilst he was great on attack, had a couple of significant defensive errors, which were... Um, which were significant for the game. And I don't think Sevu Reese is going to be dropping off that Lacanio Am tackle out wide, as an example. Yep, definitely. And then South Africa going across to Australia and, and playing the Wallabies. We, from <laughs> the the weekend's performance, or Australia and uh, Argentina, the thing that the Wallabies really struggled with was the high ball. That's one yeah. area that South Africa excel at. Do you think yeah. that the Wallabies have... Um, well, they definitely have a bit of work to do in the next two weeks, but do you think that that's an area of their game plan they can fix up? Or is it oh. going to be a little bit more of, let's get through these these two tests and see if we can do something that South Africa may not be anticipating to try and change the tempo? Yeah, look, um, the main thing they're going to have to be working on is having the inside runners hitting the... Um, hitting the unders line to kind of work inside of the South African rush defense. We've done that somewhat successfully in the past. So I think having some of our strong runners like Hunter Pasami, who should be back by then, um, or maybe, um, maybe Fichetti as well. He's, he's a strong ball runner too. Uh, Bobby Valentini with the unders line, just some of those guys hitting into that seam defense, I think would be, will be really important, but, the main difficulty, like you highlighted, is that high ball receipt. And that's just incredibly, incredibly difficult for them to be able to address at this point in time. Um, Andrew Kellaway coming back will help. I think in my mind, Jordi Pattaya moves either to the bench or out of the 23 to make room for Kellaway and Wright goes back to the wing. Um, I think Kellaway is a better fullback than Wright. And um, the some of the issues that happened on the high ball weren't actually all Wright's fault. Um, there was like of the four tries, one of them was uh, James O'Connor not getting to the ball and knocking it on. Um, one of them was Marika not getting to the ball and two of them were um, kick grubbers in behind. So he didn't directly, he wasn't directly responsible for any tries of high ball receipt, but he also struggled with it. So I think move him to wing. Kellaway's a little bit better under the high ball and a little bit more experienced at fullback. So hopefully that will help. What about Suliasi Vunavalu? Do we think that by no means is Tom Wright deserving of being dropped, but at the same time, Andrew Kellaway, if if 100% fit and ready to be picked, will most likely start at 15 for the Wallabies. Do you then gamble on Vunavalu on the wing? with Corabetti to see if he can have that um, high ball pressure? I mean, yeah, Vunavalu is obviously a large body and has fairly good aerial skills from what we've seen. I would just trust Dave Reddy to know if he has the capacity to execute that in an international test. We haven't seen enough of him to know. It'd be pure speculation to say, yeah, he's better at it than Tom Wright because we just don't know. Um, So if they make the call, then in Rennie we trust. Uh, Hashtags. Hashtag in Rennie we trust. Isn't it um, hashtag trust um, Uncle Renz or something? 
I, I think it's hashtag in running we trust. Let's go with okay. that one. We'll go with that. Um, but yeah, so some of the other players that are coming up, coming back should be Scotty Sio, Angus Bell, Alan Alatoa, Dave Parecki, Andrew Kellaway, Hunter Paisami. So, I mean, you bring those back in, almost all of them are starting starting 15 or yeah. within a 23. So Bell, Alatoa, Parecki, Andrew Kellaway and Hunter, they're all starting players. Yeah. So I think it's going to be... Um, unfortunately, again, another vastly changed team, but uh, because of the return of our starting players. So I guess that's a positive in a way. Now, we, we were going to keep this brief and we will move on to the final point. There was, uh, finishing up on the New Zealand element, there was a press conference that was announced this afternoon. And what happened there, Ando? <laughs> uh, a whole lot of not much. Which is fascinating. So uh, rugby boss of New Zealand Rugby Union, Mark Robinson, called for a press conference this afternoon. It was pretty lengthy. But within it, he didn't even back Ian Foster to remain within the role. So, I mean, some of the quotes that come from it, are, there's a huge amount of passion and speculation. We appreciate that. We, we just need time to work that through. And we've been having conversations through this time with Foz and we believe we know where we stand. And we just have to work that through with him. So that basically means you're you cut, but we're just not wanting to say it yet. So what, why are you holding a press conference about that? If you're not going to give him the full support of the board, which, by the way, is basically just a ringing endorsement, you're about to get cut. <laughs> why, why is that even being said? Why, what was the value of this press conference except to pour even more speculation over the future of Ian Foster's job? So if he's still the coach in two, three weeks' time, I'll be incredibly surprised. So do you expect New Zealand rugby to sack Ian Foster before the first test against Argentina in two weeks? It, it wouldn't surprise me if they announce that he'll be finishing at the end of the rugby championship okay. and they finish with him as coach for the next, what, four games. Um, and then in that interim period prior to the end of year tours, uh, then they'll bring in a new coach and give that coach some time to be with the squad. And who, who do you, if they do go down this path that you're anticipating... Who do you foresee being that coach that's named for the spring tour? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, supposedly, Razor Robinson said that he wasn't actually keen for the position. I'm not sure how much that's gamesmanship oh, I mean, for him. That's, um, you can understand where he's coming from. It's an absolute hospital pass by New Zealand rugby. Here, take yep. the All Blacks in the worst ranked position they've been ever. Um, they've just come off a losing home series, lost against South Africa quite badly. This week was a, a bit of a, an upbeat, but it was a good know, performance. Yep, good performance, but it's it's a small up in a downward trend. You can understand why he would choose not to take over at this point and then take over post twenty twenty three and really build into twenty twenty seven. And if that's the plan moving forward, it really wouldn't surprise me if, if Joe Schmidt took yeah. over control. Um, I think he, the problem is he moved to New Zealand because he wanted to spend more time with his family, not to be a full-on head coach. But maybe if he knows it's just to the end of the 2023 World Cup, um, then he might well be willing to take that on. So, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if Joe Schmidt or like a pretty left-field call is Warren Galland to step into that role. Um <laughs> wouldn't surprise me again if it's that temporary thing to get them through to the end of the world cup yeah it will be very interesting to see what happens over the next few weeks uh in new zealand rugby but there, there was an article released by jamie pandaran do we want to touch oh. on that or do we want to just completely move on okay and finish the pod um no let's just really quickly comment on this uh i'll, I'll say my piece um 
can we just firstly say, Jamie, can you just update the photo that you've got with the Daily Telegraph, please, mate? Because um, it's a little bit out, out outdated, but that's okay. Uh, and then the second point is, mate, why are you putting an article out like this prior to the Bledisloe? All it does is provide ammunition to the Kiwi players um, that is going to hype them up before the game. Be modest, be humble, have some quiet confidences going around and don't don't um, plaster this type of um, rabble rousing sensationalism out there when all it really does is fuel the All Blacks fire. That's that's my thoughts on it. Yeah. I mean, how, how many times have we been here before where we've we've got the journalists who need to write these clickbaity articles to to get viewers reading and then realistically we haven't been any anywhere closer to the blood of soul in the last 10, 15 years. So yep. um, I don't think it's it's warranted or needed at the time, at the current time. And I don't want to start celebrating our, our blood of soul victory until we've beaten New Zealand in that second test and have the trophy in Michael Hooper's hands. I mean, it's just it's just crazy, isn't it? Because we got to play them. The first game's in Melbourne at Marvel Stadium, and the second game's at Eden Park. When was the last time we won at Eden Park? And yet we're already claiming that we're going to end up wet as low woe. Like that's just anyway, ridiculous in my mind. I think we've spoken enough this week. So thank you, Ned Hannigan, for joining us this evening. Massive, massive. Um, insight into the Wallaby setup at the moment. Um, great to chat with him. What a great bloke. Definitely looking forward to seeing what he can do when he gets back in the sky blue next year for the Waratahs. Um, ticked off a bucket list on your your um, your bucket list there, Ando. Mate, incredibly, incredibly stoked that that happened. And he was an absolute legend. Uh, super, super nice guy. And yeah, well done for getting him on, mate. It was, it was loads of fun. Well, thanks everyone for getting to this part of the pod. Um, please do give us a like and a share on our socials. Do share the pod with your mates. Um, the more people we can get listening to the rugby gospel, the better. Uh, we'll be back again next. Well, actually, we might not be back next week. I'm not sure nah, what we're we'll, doing we'll, yet. We'll do a pod. We'll do a pod. Sure. Okay, we will be back next week. There's no game to talk about, but we'll, we'll figure out something. Um, but yeah, we'll be back regular time, regular place. Um, and we'll see you then. All right. All the best, team. Bye. Bye. Hey team, it's Ando here. 2022 is a big year for Australian rugby, and we at Pick and Drive Rugby want to be in the thick of it, but we need your support. We want to attend post-match press conferences to ask your questions. We need more interviews with players and coaches to give you the insights that you want into the game they play in heaven. And we want better recording equipment to create a superior listening experience for you. If you like what we do, and let's be honest, even if you don't, please consider getting involved and sending us a tip. All donations will be put straight back into the podcast. We do this for love, not money, but every little bit counts. So please go to ko-fi.com slash pick and drive rugby. You can give us $1, you can give us 5 whatever is within your budget, we would be incredibly appreciative for. Thank you for your support. Let's get back to the pod.